People forget that Alien was an original screenplay back in yep. 1979, or that Terminator was an original screenplay right. back in 1984, or that Star Wars was an original screenplay in 1977. So the fact that like the studios like don't want to take those gambles, like would anybody make the Matrix now? Like at the budget it was in 1999, it seems unlikely, which is sad, you know? Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. I'm Josh Horowitz. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, it's one of our favorites. Edgar Wright is back. The world's end is 10 years old, so we're pouring a pint out for it. That is exactly the wrong message of the film, but we're gonna do it anyway. Plus, we'll do some Scott Pilgrim appreciating as a new Netflix adaptation drops with some very familiar voices. Edgar Wright, welcome back to Happy Sad Confused. Thanks for having me. Nice to be back. That's good to see you, man. Uh, for a guy that doesn't have a new film out, we have a lot to talk about. This is... Uh... I, know. <laughs> I know. It's nice. I actually feel sort of it's not as much pressure. Like, it's actually, you know, right. like not having... It's, it's nice to talk and not have to kind of like think about all of the talking points you have to hit. So I appreciate that. No, no, there's pressure. We have to get like 10 more tickets sold to World's End. We got to get like 100 more people t to join the Cornetto trilogy 10 years later. Well, in 2021, I had two films out and it was in the pandemic and I was totally zoomed out by the end of the year. It was sort of, you know, listen, I'm I'm not working in a coal mine, so I'm, and there are worse things to be doing, but it's a strange thing i know it's like the future but like doing like zoom press like for months and months on end start to get really lonely and depressing <laughs> like, i don't know yeah. if you find the same way oh 100 actually we did the first q a in person yeah. in new york that i had been it was the first time i had been back in the country that night for 22 months I was just I was just reminiscing with with, with Greg, uh, our mutual friend. Yeah, that was the first time out and about, and I feel like we were all still like, "Hey, like ten feet apart, are we able?" Yes. And and they were asking us to wear masks for the Q and A, and it was like, "What?" It was very odd, but but it was it was it was really it sort of strange. It was emotional to be back in a cinema. Yeah. With an audience. And I yeah. hadn't been in the country for like twenty two months, so it was and it was that night. It was I floated that night and saw you. That was crazy. Well, we're back in our Zoom boxes, but we'll see each other I in know. person again, sir. What's going but, on? We're past well, this. <laughs> I thought so. No, no, no. We'll, we'll link up one of these days. Uh, first, I want to congratulate you. Look, I take pride in my guest list, but you won up to me. You got Scorsese. You had a great chat with Marty recently about Killers of the Flower Moon back in the UK. Um, are you guys on? I mean, you you know each other. I know you've 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 have a relationship. Do you still do you call him Marty? Do you feel comfortable at this point? Yeah, I mean. Um... I, I guess I met him the first time, maybe back in like 2004, 2005, when Sean came out, but only briefly and didn't meet him again until 2019 um, when The Irishman came out. And then sort of since then, I, I guess in that way, if I, I just that maybe like he recognizes in me um, that there's somebody who is equally obsessive about any time they have two or three hours free, they will watch a movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it sort of turned in the pandemic turned into this thing of I sent him this letter and asked him like for a list of formative British films that were not David Lean and Powell and Pressburger and he and he responded like with you know a list of 50 and notes and that sort of turned into I guess it was almost like having some kind of like book club where you know 
you know, I'd, you know, it's also a crazy thing for then for him to say to me at the end of it, he says, if you have any other films that you think I should see, and then that's that's a real question to ask is like, what film am I going to suggest to Mark Scorsese that he hasn't seen? That's kind of quite a big question. But weirdly, like we have been sort of trading back and forth with, with mostly about British films. And there's things that I've suggested to him like um, there was this film that the BFI released, re-released last year called The Appointment. And I had told him to watch it and he was completely knocked out by it. And I got to tell the director of that film who had not made a film since, had not made a film in 42 years, that Martin Scorsese saw a film and thought it was knockout. And I said to, I said to Marty, <laughs> but I said, I said, you should write him a note. He would like make his year and he did and he sent him like a letter and this guy was just like i'm framing this like my school says he just sent me a, a, a letter saying like i loved your film it really blew me away and i don't know so i mean i guess that's the thing is what's really nice about it in a way is that you know it's just to what you would want to talk to scorsese about but this is the same with directors of us you know that who are like making films is one thing but it never stops being about enjoying films and right. you're always kind of like looking for the diamonds in the rough or always like looking back and sort of seeing like what else is out there you know and 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 I guess the sort of like people of like minds tend to sort of um congregate you know and 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 discuss you know so well, it's, I feel very I feel very flattered to kind of know him at all even in a in a little way you know Speaking of Diamonds in the Rough, not that there are really any undiscovered Scorsese films, but do you have a hot take on any of his films? Like, are you like New York, New York is an underappreciated masterpiece or Gangs of New York deserves a little more love? What's your kind of well, your I hot tip? Interesting for him is that, that there are obviously films that are now regarded as classics, which in their time, like, um, weren't or were dismissed. So... The King of Comedy was infamously well, not King a... Comedy yeah, in After Hours for two, yeah. I think, like, weren't necessarily, um, you know, as as uh, as Francesca's TikTok said, were slept on. Um, <laughs> so, but I think that that's the thing that I think is interesting is that, in fact, I realised the other day, because we were talking about it, that King of Comedy was the first Scorsese movie I ever saw. Oh, wow. Um, because I didn't... We didn't have a VHS in my house, um, a VHS player... Um, so I saw King of Comedy when it was on TV when I was about 12. And I think that was the first Scorsese movie I ever saw. And even though I didn't really have anything to compare it to, it, it really knocked me out, even though part themes of that, like as a 12 year old, I don't know who Jerry Lewis was. <laughs> like some, <laughs> big, yeah, you know, big Jerry Lewis man. But, but um, yeah, so I, I guess that's the thing with, with, with his films. It's like, it's interesting to me when I did that talk with him and I, the biggest like, challenge of that was it was a career talk and initially right. the slot was like an hour long. And I was like, how am I going to fit his career for an hour? So I had to sort of narrow it down a little bit. But I, he also asked me to pick the clips. He goes, maybe you can pick the clips because he asked me to moderate. And he said, maybe you can pick the clips for me, which is also when there's only like six clips and one of them is the new film. It's like, well, what classic are we not going to show? Like, so like I can't not show Mean Streets and I can't, <laughs> I have to show Taxi Driver. So right. that means that already like Raging Bull and, King, you know, like Goodfellas are out. Because I thought like, let's show King of Comedy. But what was interesting is that he obviously hadn't, he hadn't, he was watching the clips like he was sort of watching them for the first time or certainly the first time in many years. And so my biggest joy of that 
talk was watching him watch the clips and yeah. re- like when the King of Comedy clip came on and is that amazing sort of sequence where Rupert Pupkin is recording the talk show on, you know, the intro to the talk show on, on a tape recorder and his mum is interrupting. And then it cuts to that shot in the, like a magical realism shot of like big black and white blow up photo and it pulls back and Rupert Pupkin's there. And Scorsese's sitting next to me and when it has that shot, he goes, wow, wow. And then he looks at me and he goes, pretty good, right? <laughs> like, you know, like, and I said, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's being like this. So I, 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 I may, I may have, I may have um, paraphrased that. I don't think he said pretty good, right? But he definitely said, "Wow." And looked to be liked as if for confirmation. I said, "Yeah, it, I know." <laughs> Do you think about like so? He's one of that 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 handful that we talk about about the filmmakers that have an atrophy that have in fact are still at the top of their game in their eighties. And we, you know, we've talked about before about George Miller, our mutual obsession. Um, do you think about that with respect to your career? You're, you're, you've got a long way to go to 80, but like, do you, do you kind of sense the difference between those that lose it and those that stay present and in fact grow in their filmography and, and how are you going to direct your, your, your way in the, into the right path? You think? I guess, I guess, um, it's an interesting one. Cause obviously like Quentin has lots of theories about this and has talked <laughs> at length about, directors that you know you know he did a whole podcast on directors final movies and I always think that's interesting and you know there are people who kind of flip the script like George Miller making Fury Road at 71 is just like I I I can't even figure it out myself because also not only did he make that at 71 he also hadn't made a live action film for nearly 20 years right that to me just like (laughs) beggars belief is like how how did you do that and come along and just wipe the floor with everybody else. So I don't know. I mean, I guess part of it is like, it always comes down to the same thing, which you could say for younger directors as well, is that, you know, you have to do the films that you want to do and not do the films that you think you ought to do. That's the key. Because there's got to be at heart, like a sincerity to it or like a real fire to want to make that film. So sometimes... And I wouldn't mention any names because like I doesn't it doesn't really, you know, sometimes you can feel that somebody is doing something because they feel like, well, w- will this be a hit? You know, yeah. um, and I think at times when directors are really sort of engaged and doing something really powerful. And I think that's the thing is, like, you know, for like Martin Scorsese, filmmaking is an obsession and it's something where it's, um, you know, like, so I, I, I don't think that that for that for him, it doesn't go away. You know, like, I mean, I respect Quentin saying that he's going to retire, but like, I hope that if he changed his mind, he would just like wake up and say, you know what? I have another one. <laughs> like, and it's, I think he, you know, I think, I think it's yeah. interesting. You know, I think it's, it's interesting. Like somebody like Hitchcock, I, I feel like um, his second from last movie, Frenzy, I right. really, and I think it's like properly like edgy, and feels really spirited and his black humor is at its blackest in that film. The final one feels like it's a bit kind of- um, Was that family plot or- Family plot, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. it has a set piece in it with a car chase and the car chase has back projection. And you think like, well, this is like five years after French Connection and I don't think <laughs> this flies anymore. But right. Frenzy, which he he must, he's already in his seventies when he made that, that is a, like a, 
a savage film that a younger director would be really proud of. So, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I, I can't predict. Listen, the honest answers to this is that you'll always feel grateful at any time you're making a movie full stop. That's the thing, especially as the business rapidly changes and the sounds are always shifting. I don't feel any like, um, I always feel that when I, I mean, even when the last movie came out and we had that Q and A, it's still in the pandemic. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. Like nobody really knows the cinema has gone forever. So you just feel like, Hey, I'm just grateful to be here. Like I can't tell you what's going to happen in the next year let alone the next 10 years, you know? But I, I, I've always respected like the way you've kind of conducted yourself and your career. And like, as much as I've kind of teased you with, and like, you know, tried to draw news out of you about big franchise stuff, like you've stayed very true to yourself and very like, you know, there are the stories of you like turning down a Mission Impossible movie, being up for a Star Trek movie. And like, while those would have been cool endeavors, I'm happy. One. <laughs> you don't remember the Star Trek one? Okay. I, I don't think I don't think so, but the, yeah. But I mean, I think usually you, it's about yeah. Like, I mean, in terms of sorry, you were going to ask a question. I was going to say did, uh, to clarify, you you did turn down what became Ghost Protocol. Is that is that true? Yes, but I mean, it was it was literally like a timing thing because right. to do it, I would have. I mean, the, you know, it, in my might seem ironic now because I think I to do it I would have had to not done the press with Scott Pilgrim like sort of I, I mean I guess but I'm, that said I you have to kind of be there for the movie so it's just yeah. one of those things like where you know like um yeah I also it's that thing where I sometimes when you really enjoy a series and I love those films and I actually you know kind of like Chris and Tom like in London you know like I've I've seen sort of like no, McHugh's yeah. talked about giving you, like, you've looked at the rough cuts and given some very valuable advice. He's been very open about that. I mean, it's it's uh, it's amazing to sort of, like, be in, included in those. Like, the, you know, it's a great email to get from, like, Chris McCrory saying, and, hey, we need another song for the jukebox in Top Gun Maverick. I'm saying, give me give me 45 minutes. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the thing to do is, like, make a playlist of, like, songs yeah. that could be in Top Gun. But, um, yeah. The thing is, is that like things are meant to things are sort of meant to be when they're meant to be. And sometimes if you love a series, you almost don't want to be the thing that could possibly fuck it up. Do you know what I mean? Like so, <laughs> so so I don't like sort of I, I love the Mission Impossible series. I don't regret kind of passing on that thing because Brad Bird's film was fucking great. And it's right. like and I loved it. And I was like first, you know, there like opening day to see it and like didn't ever sit there thinking, yeah, oh, I could have done that. I was just <laughs> thinking, this is great. So it's like, I think it's that thing where you, you know, um, and I've had that a number of times in my career, even with TV stuff where I've been asked to do episodes of my favorite TV shows. And part of me in the back of my head thinking, well, this show has existed really well without me for right. this long. So it's not going to like, it's not going to die without me. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I'm going to enjoy a new episode of it. So I get, I guess that's how, and on the other thing of just, I feel like I sort of get superstitious about talking about future projects because with a certain movie that I didn't do, um, you know, I did before I like left the movie, I had done two different Comic-Con appearances. I had like <laughs> sort of like right. press and you know, I, I have no regrets about leaving the movie and it was the right thing to do at the time. And over time, I like have 
like zero regrets about it but i do have regrets about doing the press because that sort of feels <laughs> foolish yeah. like where there's interview that you did about a film that you hadn't started making yet and so that's the thing where i get a bit superstitious because i think like i i don't want to ever do that again where i literally was in hall h twice for a movie that i didn't even end up making and and that's the bit that embarrasses me i get it I, it's, you shouldn't feel any shame about it but i i at the same time i get it Let, let's let's talk a little bit the boy who cried wolf no, I Especially understand. in this day and age where you could make a movie and it doesn't come out. So like sort of, you know, just want to sort of, I'll only believe it when we're in a cinema doing a Q&A for it, Josh. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard someone say, like, I don't believe it until I do the director's commentary. And no one does director's commentaries anymore. So I do. I do. <laughs> Let's talk about um, revisiting two of your great works, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, uh, which is now living on in a different incarnation. I was just telling you, um, I ended up binging this entire thing. Scott Pilgrim Takes Off is fantastic. There are some surprises uh, to be sure in this one. Um, talk to me a little bit about just um, your journey with Scott Pilgrim, because look, we were talking way back when, we were at that Comic-Con together, and that's one of the infamous ones. I mean, luckily we can now talk about this with a smile, I think, because people love this movie and it has lived on, but you went on a journey with that where like at Comic-Con, it was gonna be a billion dollar movie. Everyone was like, you blew the roof off of the place. The reviews were great. And then box office was what it was. Did it feel like it took you a minute to kind of, reconcile that those mixed emotions around Scott Pilgrim? Well, I think, you know, there were things, I think the thing with it was, um, number one was like, for your own mental health, like don't read the trades the weekend your movie comes out. <laughs> so I, I made a decision. I was smart enough, like on the Friday thinking, I'm not gonna read anything like anymore. Like I just, because here's the thing, we were still out promoting the movie. So when it came out, and it opened at number five and like, you know, like we were all disappointed, but obviously like if you go on like a deadline or a box office mojo, they, you're using much harder words than you want to hear. <laughs> that said, the thing was, are we proud of the movie? Yes, we were. Are the cast proud of the movie? Yes, they were. You know, sometimes if a film doesn't do well, the first thing that happens is that everybody involved runs for the hills. And, right. you know, there's one, there's one actor, I won't mention who, but... He said something about a film. I asked him about a film that he had coming out, and he said he goes, mm. "He goes, that might be a head out of town for the weekend when that comes out." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh boy!" Like, but the thing with Scott Pilgrim was is that the cast were really proud of it, right? And and so and it's funny. Like I, again, I won't mention names, but there's a couple of filmmakers sometimes who like on the Sunday night kind of write their own epitaph of the movie and how it did like on social media. And and sometimes I texted that person said, delete that tweet, you will regret it. Like sort of like the life of a movie cannot be measured just in the first three days. Right. And much of that wants to be that that's the metric of like, this is how it did this weekend. And, and that's the end of that, you know, like, and of course, and not putting myself in the same bracket as there as these films, but, there are so many films that we love that didn't do that well on first release and are now like, you know, much better remembered or well thought of 
than whatever else was number one that week. And again, I'm not putting Scott Pilgrim in this bracket, but you could reel off a whole list of things. Yep. Blade Runner, The Thing, Big Lebowski, um, Big Trouble in Little China didn't even crack the top 10 when it came out, which just blows my mind. An abomination. Or even then further back, you've got things like Susan Kane or like It's a Wonderful right. Life. I mean, again, I'm not putting Scott Pilgrim in the same sentence as Susan Kane, even though I just did. So, <laughs> but, but the thing is, is that are you proud of the movie? And if so, then it becomes just about changing the language. So I was always like sort of thought, Whenever people would ask me about it, I would just try and avoid the the F word and the B word in relation to how it did. It's just don't don't be quoted even saying that. And so right. it would just be the thing is people saying, so, you know, by the time we got to Europe, like the weekend after it came out, the whole cast there, obviously it's a question that then starts coming up. How do you feel about how it did this weekend? Like, are you disappointed how it did in the States? And then you just have to kind of say, hey, we're really proud of the movie and, um, you know, we just want to get the word out and hope people discover it. And that's the thing is I sort of, and I remember there was one time, like when it was the, the London premiere was the Wednesday after it had come out in the States. And the whole cast was there. Because I think Chris Evans was in London doing Captain America at that time. So like every, everybody was there and like, Michael, Jason, Mary, Brandon, Bree, like Kieran was there. Everybody was there. And, um, you know, I was, remember I was talking to kind of Anna about it at the time. And I was thinking, I think maybe before the premiere, like maybe I should say something to the cast just to sort of, you know, say, hey, I know it didn't do well last weekend, but I'm really proud of it. I know you're really proud of it. Let's go out there tonight in Leicester Square and have a great time. And so I was going to do this kind of rallying speech to sort of like say, hey, don't worry about the box office. Like, it's going to be okay. Um, anyway, so organized to have a little drink in the sort of uh, the library of this hotel, get all the cars together half an hour before we left. And I was ready to do this speech. And then they came down and like, I just saw like Ellen and Kieran and Jason Schwartzman just like fucking around and having a great time. And I was like, oh, they're fine. <laughs> they're okay. They'll be okay. They're young. <laughs> they're, they're, they're fine. I never, I never gave the speech. I kind of figured I could just see that they were having a whale of a time. I was thinking, oh, it's fine, you know. But it is a thing, I think, that the that, that part of the reason that, um, you know, maybe it's endured is because we didn't give up on it. And, uh, you know, we did like, by the end of the year, even, it was already kind of like, a regular midnight screening. I mean, just in Los Angeles at like the New Art and the New Beverly would be showing at midnight. And, and you know, if we were in town, we'd show up. Or like, um, so it was something where you just feel like, okay, this is a longer campaign. <laughs> <than Right. there's> the, <laughs> Apparently it's a 13 year campaign and going, yeah. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> that's great. I mean, it is, it is something that I feel like that that's the thing and you know like in those circumstances it's it's always funny to me and you can say this about so many films when people sort of try and like um that the you know the kind of the last word on a film isn't on the monday morning and i always i've told this story before but i was really meant a lot to me because usually as well if something doesn't do well like you don't hear from anybody like sort of and sort of it's just kind of like radio silence from like the studio or the cast and stuff and i got one of the best emails on the monday morning was from michael moses like the head of marketing universal and he sent me this email on the monday morning and all of it all it said was years not days 
<laughs> and it made me really emotional. It was like, sort of like, thank you. I really appreciate that. So he just said, years, not days. And he's like the first person when the Netflix trailer came out for the show. He goes, he goes, there you go. There you <laughs> like, go. Yeah. It's like, so it, it, it is, it is interesting. Like, and it's obviously it's tough because you kind of like, if you're a director and as a producer as well, you do feel a responsibility because, you know, um, you know, you've talked something up for years whilst you're making it and it hasn't quite done what everybody hoped it would do. And, you know, everybody goes through the sort of the, what could we have done differently? But in this case, it was more a sense of, you just knew that it was like the audience was out there. It's just going to take longer to find them, you know? It's also, I mean, a testament for those that don't know, this new animated show is essentially a reunion. It's like your entire cast came back. Like, and it is, you just referred to a bunch of them. This was like, you know, a big chill level casting call. You got, you assembled like a, an amazing cast in this film. Um, you know, Aubrey, Anna, Evans, like all of these folks that are ginormous stars in their own right. They don't have to do an animated series. So that is a testament. Talk to me a little bit about your relationship to the show. You're an executive producer. Does it feel like, I, you know, I, I assume you're, you're not the one necessarily driving the ship day to day. So it must be like really special to see the folks that you took so much time in casting inhabit these roles in a different way. You've almost given birth to this indirectly. Well, I think in a funny way, over the years where people would always ask and, and sort of, you know, fans kind of usually ask things that are like, they're not interested in how things did or whether something's in the black or not. They'll just say, you know, like, when's the sequel? <laughs> like, you know, that's the main thing that people just ask as they say, and I, I kind of, you know, I think, and and maybe over the years when people had asked me about Scott Pilgrim and said, will there be anything more? I would sort of probably say as a deflection, well, you know, that's up to Brian Lee O'Malley. He's the creator of the books. And if there's anything more, it's 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 up to him. It's his characters. So I would probably say that as a, a deflection in interviews until it wasn't. Because then <laughs> like five years ago, Jared LaBeouf, one of the producers of the film, and in fact, the person who gave me Brian's book in 2004, like literally pressed it into my hands at a Shaun of the Dead screening. He called me up and he said, um, do you think there's anything more we can do with Scott Pilgrim? And I finished the sentence and said, that's not a expensive live action sequel. <laughs> and he said, yeah. Because <laughs> Universal is asking, you know, and other people are asking, because over this time, and this is the nice thing when you realize that maybe, you know, like if the film, the original film isn't in the black, it's it's not a red ink item in terms of it's now part of the studio catalog. As in, it has been reissued multiple times and there are right. different Blu-rays and different steelbooks and merchandise and t-shirts and all the kind of hot topic stuff and like, uh, you know, the soundtrack being reissued and all of those things. So... I said, because I said it in many interviews, well, you know, maybe an anime series is the way to go because people always ask, are the books going to ever be adapted in full? Maybe that's something. Maybe, you know, Brian would want to do that. So then we all got on a call where we discussed that. And I guess the thing that was a surprise to me that Brian was interested, but he didn't want to revisit the books because at this point, it's stuff that he had done nearly 20 years ago. I mean, actually, the, the first book came out 20 years ago this year. So he went away and I think sort of like brainstormed with Ben David Grabinski about what it could be. And that's when they came up with the pitch for the show and then sort of came back to 
me and Adam and Jared and Naira and sort of said, this is the idea. And I thought, well, this is wild. Like, you know, it's what it's wild. Yeah. The less you know, the the, the better. I mean, suffice yeah, it to say, no, that's a good thing is what's nice about it is in a great way is I don't think people, you know, having posted the trailer and stuff on socials, people are just excited to see it. And I just said, you know what, don't read anything, just watch it. You know, like, um, and what was really nice was I think then they went away and wrote the episodes. And to answer your question, it was like just pleasure of um, reading the scripts coming in and how like fun it was to be back in that world. And, you know, and obviously Brian wrote them with Ben David, but to hear Brian's voice and also, Ben Davis is a big fan of the books and the film. And so it was just sort of, especially the first episode, which is like a sort of tweaked version of the book and the film, but like with differences. And I was just loving it. And so I think we didn't go to the cast until we they, they had written all of the scripts and it had gotten a green light um, through Netflix. So then as executive producer, it's my job to say, can we bring the band back together? And so I wrote this email basically telling them what was happening and like, obviously stating the obvious. I think I said something like, um, you know, the film had the greatest cast of all time and I put an asterisk and then said about like coming back and like, we'd love you to read it. Like Brian and Ben David have written something like really magical and surprising. And I think you're going to love it. And obviously we would love you to be involved if you want to. I think the asterisk at the bottom said, yes, even better than the cast of The Godfather. <laughs> Wait, did you put this on the on the infamous group thread or did you send individualized notes to each person? Uh, I think it was on the group thread. There had been a group email <laughs> going since 2010. And, you know, like it would be just an ongoing thing. I think Brian has told this story once that once like Michael Sarah responded to something that had been sent three years before, like he like just seen it and said, oh, that's hilarious, you know, and then said, Michael, are you responding to an email from like 2012? But we had kept in touch through that. And obviously we'd seen each other over the years and also, you know, whenever anybody's in town and it's just like a sort of ongoing family. And we'd done that reunion that Satcha Barbell did for uh, Water Aid in the year that was the 10th anniversary. Because the sad thing was because of the pandemic, we had that Universal re-released it at the cinemas, but we couldn't do any reunion readings. Um, And so that was a shame because it kind of came out and, but there were no, I did one Q and A in London with Bill Pope, but we didn't do anything with the cast. But um, the nice thing, so I sent out that email to everybody and within three hours, everybody had replied, which was amazing. So they were just in, and that's just, you know, I think is a testament to how much fun they had making the film and how much they like the source material, but, and how much they like each other, you know? Right. So it was really sweet. And then, and then in the process of the show being made, like you said, in terms of, I could kind of sort of just, you know, oversee things and just make sure that the cast are all kind of happy. And, and there was a weird thing of like watching the animation um as it was finished over the course of you know like a year and hearing the voices of the cast start to be edited in was really right. surreal. sometimes you have kind of temp sure. voices in there and then suddenly mary's back and it's like, here's mary playing remote amazing. amazing you know so I, the fact that everybody came back is just beautiful but it's also just a testament to how much they love each other you know and and hopefully enjoy making the film 
Would you ever at this point, look, I mean, obviously Scott Pilgrim is not necessarily something you own. It began with someone out of someone else's head. But, you know, I remember way back when we talked about the infamous horrible space debacle when they tried to remake your your beloved show in terms in, into a network TV show here. Maybe it's not about that. <laughs> I guess my question, though, is like, would you ever at this point let any of your films be adapted in any way? Have you seriously considered? Because I can't imagine folks haven't come to you with Sean of Dead, Dead ideas, Hot Fuzz ideas, et cetera, animated show, Broadway musical, whatever it is. I mean, yes. And in fact, not in terms of like another film without us, because I don't really know how that would work, um, but definitely in terms of uh, in other kind of forms with, you know, the Cornetto films, yes. And there've been some conversations about that, but I think it's also, we're quite, you know, protective about it. Like, I think like a long time ago, there was a thing of that an American company wanted to do a TV series of Shaun of the Dead, like based on the film. We were like, no, like, you know, like it just, uh, it just felt like we, you know, like some things, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know, we have, we have talked about doing things me and Simon obviously like have never stopped talking about doing something else. And, um, and sometimes when these things come up, we, we take it really seriously. And some things are still things that we're still talking about, but it's, it's also being kind of protective of what it is because I think the Scott Pilmer thing was like a perfect way of, of continuing right. because it's really, um, because it's Brian Lee O'Malley doing it and it's literally his comic likes artwork come to life it's beautiful so it's like something where it's both a, a huge expansion of the books and the film but also it's really true to his original artwork and you know that he you know he is from canada but he drew the book like it was a japanese manga comic and now it's become a real anime with a, an amazing japanese product production company doing it science Saru. so just like that's that's perfect in terms of a way right. to continue going. I think if me and Simon or any of the other things we did that would be an extension of something, it's like you want to have creative control and and so yeah, I, I guess that's the, the the ultimate thing. I mean, I know it'd be a lot richer if I had said yes to everything, but I kind of <laughs> <laughs> but you're you're rich in terms of your contentment and your your soul. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Let's speaking of Simon, speaking sound of sound very convincing there, did I? <laughs> Let's <laughs> put another zero in the bank account one. Yes. <laughs> um Let's talk a little world's end. The time is always flying by with us, but um, it's 10th anniversary. I revisited it last night. I love it as much as I did 10 years ago. This was the third in the Cornetto trilogy. I mean, there are a lot of things to talk about. The thing I wanted to bring up is it plays differently in retrospect. I mean, Simon at the time, as I recall, we didn't know that he had gone through some some real stuff. He he had you know he he's been open about this, so I feel like we can we can say this. He you know he's now sober. He had issues with alcohol, and and this film is clearly a commentary on stuff he was he was going through. I would assume so. Yeah, and I was I, very proud of him for talking about it because when he did talk about it, which was about five years after the movie came out, uh, I sort of read in the paper like him talking about it and I called him immediately and I just said I'm so proud of you I never thought you would talk about this and and it was something that um you know and I don't want to like say anything that he hasn't said so I'm very conscious of like sure. it's 
his story and not mine. But I think one of the things of the world's end, because we'd sort of been, I'd been sort of party to some things that had happened and also hopefully tried to help as well. Um, and so by the time that we wrote World's End, it was a very strange thing where we were, it was like classic British repressed um, people where we're talking about it sort of in the third person. So when we were writing The World's End, which was after Simon had had his issues and been to rehab, we're sort of talking about it in a very, it, it's like sort of Gary is a sort of stand in for a lot of things and and a way of talking about it and, and you know in like comedy that's kind of real and personal and painful and the sort of finding the humor in that um so but, but what's funny is that we would always talk about it like it was the character so simon wouldn't say well when when this happened to me he would have saying well i think gary would <laughs> so right. it was a strange way it was always like it was sort of like when we were writing it was it was sort of like the elephant in the room and it was like like funny, you know, because the movie is sort of like about an intervention on Gary King. Like the end of the movie is like right. a cosmic intervention. So there's a lot of things in it, which obviously we just couldn't talk about at the time. And when we did the press tour for that movie, um, you know, journalists would always ask us, say, is Gary based on anybody you know? I mean, Simon would always say, it, it's sort of a combination of right. ourselves and lots of other people we know. It's sort of a bit of me, bit of Simon. So it always <laughs> becomes like deflecting on that. So it, it is something I was really, that said, I mean, and, and this is something I, I do not mean to make light of this at all, but like, I just really proud of Simon and also Nick, Nick, I don't know if you've read his new book, which is incredible, um, a Slice of Fried Gold, which is essentially a recipe book, but is also incredibly raw about talking about, um, you know, addiction and, um, and uh, you know, kind of like eating disorders it, somehow in a funny recipe book. I don't know quite how he pulls it off, but it's an incredible piece of writing and I highly recommend it. So I just is sort of like both Simon and Nick are sort of like ha are very honest about themselves and to sort of, you know, like com making it into a comedy is something that's, it's therapeutic at the end of the day. So yeah. I think maybe- some of those things were maybe when it came out a bit heavier than people were expecting. But then over the years, it is the film that I think people have said to me that it meant something to them, either at the time that it made them realize something about themselves or that like they had rewatched it and it hit differently, like when they were older or whether they had had some issues themselves. So I don't mean to kind of make it sound like it's any sort of like, profound drama um but it, it's always the things that are like i think when you make comedies and they can sort of function as a trojan horse for like personal issues um that are you know that are, you know like i said as brits it's like we don't talk about them out loud a lot, you, just, a lot. you just you just make movies about them <laughs> don't talk about them. Um, like, look, let's make a movie about the thing we can't talk about exactly <laughs> and then go on a press tour and not talk about it and then no um, talk about it at all <laughs> um okay a few bits and bobs with you um you we mentioned a couple of these folks earlier uh last we chatted we talked about mad max fury road and anya who you'd worked with and you helped kind of facilitate that as as she's now our furiosa as my, you... last, my last dinner before the pandemic like march 2020 me and George Miller were in London. 
he had just watched last night in Soho in the screening room at Working Title, and we went for dinner in a restaurant that was deserted. <laughs> and the things I remember about it, because George Miller is a doctor, is talking to George about the movie I just made, talking to George about Furiosa and him asking if he thought Anya would be great to work with. And I said, absolutely, she's a megastar, you should hire her. And then most pressingly, what do you think is going to happen in the next 24 hours? <laughs> ask, ask a doctor what you think is going to happen. And like, and he, and his, uh, you know, he's a doctor, so he's kind of got a good bedside manner, but it's obviously what he's saying is absolutely terrifying of oh, this God. is what's going to happen in the world. So I will never forget that dinner. Has he given you a sneak peek at Furiosa? No, I, I haven't actually. I've been meaning to get in touch with him actually. I've been, I've spoken to him a couple of times since, but I haven't seen him. I haven't seen him in person since actually. We've sort of spoken by Zoom, but yeah. no, I am, I mean, I'm excited as anybody else to see it. I can't wait. Um, have you read Quentin's new script? I have not, no. Okay. And that's me being genuine. You can sort of see I'm not diverting my eyes. I have No, no. No, all good. Um, uh, I, I said before, I'm not going to put you on the spot for some latest rumors uh, around you because that's too cruel. But I'll ask you this. Are you a fan of the original Barbarella film? Is that an actual good movie? Or is you it? Know, you know, I, I think it is. Like, um, I, here's the thing is what's interesting with, you know, like, uh, is I think sort of like there's, when remakes are sort of interesting is if there's something that, um, you know, Barbarella, okay, let me back up on that. Barbarella is actually sort of, I rewatched it like reasonably recently. And I think it's one of those films that people in their head have said, well, that doesn't date well. But then when you watch it again, it's actually a lot sharper than you remember it. Cause you know, Terry Southern wrote the original screenplay. And I think actually that when I was a teenager, I probably was enjoying it on a much more superficial level. And sort of like watching something like that now is like a different thing. But you could say that about so many movies, you know, like where you watch them as an adult, like something like Blake Edwards 10 is like, oh, now I get it. Now I'm in my 40s. The midlife crisis thing makes sense to me. When you're a teenager, you're like, wait, why is he? Why does he not have sex with Bo Derek at the end? I don't get it. Isn't that the point of the movie? I don't get it. And now you're like, of course, he has Julie Andrews at home. <laughs> um, but I, I was—I really tried to kind of like sort of divert from what you were asking yeah, me about. Yeah, you, you, you gave me a three-minute ten, ten anecdote but instead I mean, of anything I've ever. <laughs> I think it's that thing that's interesting. You know, I think in this day and age as well, it's like in terms of like, you know, like I think when remakes are done well, is if there's something else to add or or there's a different take on it. So, right. I think the problem is like sometimes recently like remakes are just kind of facsimiles of the original film and i i don't really get that excited about a lot of them because they feel like sort of karaoke versions of the originals right you know obviously back in like the 70s and 80s you had ones where they were additive like philip kaufman's invasion of the body snatchers or the john Compton's the thing or david cronenberg's the fly like it's it's taking something and and doing something interesting with it and, you know, in terms of like things that I've been like, you know, like The Running Man, which is something that is an active development. Why is that interesting to me? Is like, you know, I like the film, but I like the book more. And right. they didn't really adapt the book. Like, <laughs> yeah. Even as a teenager, when I saw the Schwarzenegger film. I was like, oh, this isn't like the book at all. And I think <laughs> nobody's adapted that book. So when that came up, I was thinking... You know, and Simon Kinberg says, do you have any interest in The Running Man? I said, you know what? I've often thought that that book 
is is something like crying out to be adapted. Now that doesn't mean that it's easy, <laughs> but like it is <laughs> something that we are working on. Yes, I'll say that much. And, and last thing, I'll cut you loose on this. I think our last podcast conversation, uh, we talked uh, James Bond, and you gave the very interesting theory, which I kind of agree with. You said Bonds <laughs> are are dark chocolate or milk chocolate, and it might be time for a milk chocolate Bond. Has have I the think I pitched this idea to Barbara herself, Barbara Broccoli herself. I'm not sure that she completely went with it, but I was. Well, like, that was sorry. my that was my that was my question. Have the broccoli's come around since our podcast? Since you put this out into the universe, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I I I I know Barbara reasonably well, and she's always been like I. You know, I think she's incredible, and I think what they, I think actually they as, uh, um, I think they're pretty smart actually. Because they, they they're willing to kind of put a pause on things to build anticipation. I think one of the problems with current franchises is um, sometimes when they announce, not mentioning any names of anything, but when they announce like massive slates of yep. like films and TV shows, and this is not like I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I am being pointed, I guess. But I always think it's that thing is it's kind of like it's 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 there's a danger of killing the golden goose. And like, I always have this thing when sometimes people announce like, you know, this, this is not, this is all studios with all no, the, what you're, what you're saying to be fair is with respect to every IP out there, the, the, yes. the broccolis are the exception. Absolutely. You're right. They are the exception to they're smart enough to kind of put the brakes on and build anticipation. So yep. you'll be excited about the next one. I think one of the problems now is that I wish with some like films and series that people would understand that like it's okay to take a break and build anticipation. Um, and I think the thing is that, you know, so because it is that thing, and maybe, listen, I I would never want to besmirch any, like, franchises because, you know, like, I'm 49 now, and it's a different thing if, like, you know, like, maybe you have kids and it's about introducing your kids to the franchise and stuff. But it is that weird thing. If I could go back to when I was a young film fan, and I've just enjoyed a movie and people saying, and guess what? There'll be one every three years for the rest of your life. I'd be like, <laughs> really? Like, I mean, that, that's the thing that is, is sad to me is like, there's just, it just, the lack of investment in new movies. And I know that might sound like um, hypocrisy if I'm talking about various remakes and stuff. But and again, it's like finding like a different angle on something. And maybe those things haven't been, you know, kind of done for 40 years or more, you know. But I think that's the thing is I wish some franchises would just kind of have the sense to just take a breather and let people get excited about it again. And because I feel like I, like there's certain things that I loved that I don't want to see them again, or I don't want to see them again for a long time. And again, I'm not going to like badmouth anything because it always gets interpreted as great. But it is something just like, or, or like just, you know, we we desperately need more new movies. And even if it's the thing, I know IP is the dreaded word, but it's even like finding new things that could be a series. Right. It's not have to just be the same things again and again. There is like sort of, so I'm not saying that like, you know, uh, I'm not so naive to say that everything has to be like original going forward. Obviously that would be great. And there is, you know, a lot of great indies and in international cinema, it isn't, we, they don't have the same problem. Like international cinema is flourishing. I just think that you would hope that the studios would put as much investment into original films as they do into the ongoing IP, but also it's like, it's okay to take a break and let something be missed 
so yeah. that kind of then you can have a big return, you know, or 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 just think about things that could be franchise starters. And that's that's the thing that baffles me is with I think is with studios, whenever somebody comes into a studio and they take over, it is that thing you become the janitor for all the IP. So if somebody takes over Warner Brothers, somebody will ask a question, what are we doing with Scooby-Doo? Right. So it's not like something it's 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 like this thinking about these are the assets we have. What are we doing with them? What are we doing with Scooby Doo right now? You know that that's basically what happens. And the, well, it's the quickest you know, path to a buck for them. Like it's like that. You know, developing new material takes time, and Scooby Doo's right there. Let's just do Scooby Doo. Yeah. So I mean, that's just one example, but it 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 is something where I just I just feel like um, you know, people forget that Alien was an original screen play back in yep. 1979 or that terminator was an original screenplay right. back in 1984 or that star wars was an original screenplay in 1977 so the fact that like the studios like don't want to take those gambles like would anybody make the matrix now like at the budget it was in 1999 it seems unlikely which is sad you know that's my rant over I was going to say there that that is Edgar Wright's TED talk for today. I'm in lockstep with you, man. I feel uh, like I ranted without like mentioning any specific. You were good. There's no pretty... Edgar Wright goes off on XXX. Um, I want it to be a headline on IndieWise. I mean, Edgar Wright goes off on blah blah. It'll just be Edgar Wright goes off on everything. <laughs> um, it's always good to catch up, man. There's never enough time. Congratulations, um, on Scott Pilgrim takes off. I'll get it right this time. It's truly a, a great riff on on Brian and your your contributions and. I think fans are going to really, really dig it. Um, go in as blind as you can. And uh, if you haven't checked out World's End, 10 years later, it's not too late. Check it out. Check out the entire Cornetto trilogy, but World's End, as you said, it gets deeper and richer. This one definitely does as the years go by. Um, it's good to catch up, man. Look I hope to see you to soon. Tiny, tiny bump in residuals from the World's yeah. End. <laughs> That's the Josh. Google Play. Then yeah. maybe eventually I'll get 25 cents in three years' time. We're just trying to get you a, a beach house one day. Uh, Edgar Wright, unhappy <laughs> second <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, man. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>